Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest is David Olney. He's an associate lecturer. He's part of the Politics and International Relations, uh, P-O-L-I-R, I guess, organization at the University of Adelaide in Australia. And we're going to talk about his work. So, David, thanks for coming. Thank you for inviting me. And isn't it a terrible abbreviation, P-O-L-I-R? Sounds like you want to be a pirate who can't say big words. Yeah, exactly. As I as I read it, I wanted to say the name as an acronym, but I don't it know. Doesn't work. Holier, yeah, it doesn't Holier. work. Holier. Right? <laughs> <laughs> very cool, tell so I can do some polaring. <laughs> uh, oh, very funny. So tell me about your uh, your background and your work. Um, background: shortest version possible. Born blind. Got to the end of high school. Thought have to go to uni. Went to uni, worked out I was good at it, concluded, okay, philosophy and political stuff is interesting. Lots of my friends went off and became army officers. So I automatically had the interest in both politics and the military because the military directly affected my friends' futures. So in the post 9-11 world, when there weren't many academics that had a long-term interest in security, everyone was suddenly trying to get up to speed on terrorism, whatever else. And I was just the default human for my department because most of my friends by that point were 10 years into their careers and I'd always been on top of it, but no one was interested. So I was kind of the weird guy that rather than having done political science and philosophy and then discovered security later, you know, understanding security from the perspective of the young officer on the ground, of the, the young insurgent on the ground had always been what interested me because that was what was going to most directly affect the people I cared about. What do you mean understanding security, uh, making sure that they're able to fight, but you know, not be killed or is it more complex than that? More complex than that in that we normally try and understand security from a national security perspective, which means politicians making decisions about national interest. But at the same time, we have professional security personnel going through years of selection and training to think and work in a very specific way. So they deploy into a theatre, thinking about the theatre they're deploying into, very different than the politicians who sent them. So in terms of a body of literature, this is a body of literature called Strategic Culture, emerged in the 1970s because of a guy called Jack Snyder. And really, the world was doing a terrible job of understanding the Soviet Union strategically until Jack Snyder came along. And he said, okay, they're not rational actors, humans aren't. They're not like us, they come out of a different system. But if we understand how they're selected and how they're trained, we can understand how they make decisions. And once Jack Snyder worked out how a strategic planner, how a general, how a major, how a KGB colonel was selected and trained in the Soviet Union, his team became excellent at predicting how they would behave. And from that point on, we had a deep insight. And it was one of those cases where 
you know, the academics with training and strategic culture could then be as much use to the professionals in security as the professional security people could be to the politicians. Everyone suddenly had a common way of understanding. So what I really wanted to bring from day one was the understanding that the politician has training to be part of a party and to become successful and to get into parliament or become, in your case, an American president. Let's talk about the, the theatre of war. What are some either historic, you know, I guess historical examples where the enemy being fought was just so alien that the uh, you know the, the side we understand was was having a lot of problems with them and what was figured out to make uh, the campaign more successful any examples well a wonderful example that affects australia and the us is world war 2 against the japanese yeah, there are famous examples of japanese officers being uh, captured by australians and americans and saying to their interrogators my men were magnificent I just wish they hadn't died so quickly. <laughs> so the sheer level of commitment uh, to achieving the mission at any and all cost, which means you have to fight an enemy understanding that they are going to throw themselves at you and you have to be prepared to do great harm to them as they're trying to do great harm to you in a really intense way that's not normal in sort of Western warfare. Literally, if we start, say, with the US Civil War as the first modern Western war, go through World War One. well, the West had decided what war looked like. It was incredibly brutal, but it was kind of evenly matched and there was a level of commitment, but there wasn't this sort of, you know, to the death level of commitment by an entire side. And Japan really changed that. Well, what did that look like in battle, uh, their commitment versus, let's say, Civil War, World War One? Like, what's an example of what would happen in a battle that would shock or Surprise, okay. you know, the, the, the difference really was so World War One or the Civil War, you would have a platoon set up and under their officer, they would take orders very well, but they'd stay undercover. And unless it was World War One and they got told to walk out of no man's land and get annihilated, uh, they'd get up and walk because they were ordered to, and also because there was normally an officer behind them in most armies with a revolver. Um, World War Two, the Japanese would be flitting through the trees, moving at you en masse from as many sides as possible in a highly, you know, not a sort of stupid wave attack where they're all going to die in two seconds. It's not going to be coming across the open like in World War One. It's going to be using cover, but always pushing forward, always looking to destabilise you and convince you you can't defend your position. So you then try and fall back and make yourself vulnerable. And they would do this with a level of intensity that was you know, very new for modern warfare. Were, were there ways to uh, take advantage of this? And oh, yeah, it, more, uh, bo you know. more booby traps, more machine guns, and the minute they start moving, just light everything up. Mm, okay. Oh. Which, again, is not, let's take an accurate shot at that one person. It's, no, let's saturate the area where we know they have to move through. So in the case of most of the, the you know, the theatre that the West fought against Japan in during World War II, this is why by the end of it, the tropical forests don't look so good no more. Oh, because they had just been, what, napalmed um, and trapped? Just artillery, machine gun, mines, you know, explosives, huge rates of fire. Huh. Interesting. What about, you mentioned the Russians in the beginning of your example. What what was unique or curious about them? What was really curious is, of course, when they started trying to work out the, the Soviet Union from, you know, the early 50s onwards, they're like, aha, they'll be like they were during World War II. We'll be able to predict them. You know, we have enough evidence of how they fought, how they thought. And... Over time, they kept confusing how they'd fought in World War II in a conventional war against a conventional enemy with how they would plan to you know, take control of Eastern Europe. 
how they would take control of something like Hungary or you know, Czechoslovakia. So as planning happened for potentially what would happen if there was a massive conflict, you know, say on the, the German border, that it would look very conventional, massive armoured battle like World War II. But as the Russians got more involved and provided military advisors, what was clear is that they were consistently evolving and they weren't behaving like their forebears had done you know, 1941 to 1945 and that they weren't playing rational actor and they weren't copying the Americans. They had modified their training, modified their tactics, going, okay, mass material warfare costs too much. We need to go in as military advisors. We need to teach people like the Vietnamese and the North Koreans to fight very effectively with less materials. So their way of fighting was a good example of you know what was going to work well, say, into the 1980s. So they'd already changed gear and we had to play catch up on this change in gear of, you know, shoot and scoot. How do you use resources more effectively? How do you move small amounts of troops in and out? How do you move armor in smaller groups? All these kind of things changed because, you know, they didn't have the advantage of having ships arriving from the UK and America anymore full of equipment. And as much as the Soviet Union would have the world believe it won World War II with brilliant tactics and its own equipment. It won World War II with okay tactics and incredibly good equipment from the US and UK. Oh. And what about more modern warfare where you know, maybe there's terrorist, guerrilla-type activities, uh, you know, suicide bombs, et cetera? What's that look like? Well, again, here we have more changes again. So the Russians go into Afghanistan in the 80s but don't really do deal with suicide bombing. Suicide bombings first happened in Sri Lanka in the 80s, and it's the Sri Lankan government and the Indian army who have to deal with it. So the evidence is there, but the evidence is there in a, a conflict being fought on a green island, um, you know, by a, a, a population that used to be part of the British Empire. There's all these specific things about it that don't really inform what we're going to have to face in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we dust off the counterinsurgency manuals, desperately thinking the counterinsurgency manuals, are going to work. But all the counterinsurgencies that had any positive outcome whatsoever between the end of World War II and say the 80s were always in a formal, a former colonial possession where you knew the language, you ran the police force, you long since had an intelligence network set up in the population, and you had decades of knowing how to manipulate that population. So diving into counterinsurgency in you know, 2001 onwards, particularly, you know, 2004 onwards in Iraq was, you know, it was a last ditched attempt to stave off absolute disaster based on a skill set that had only barely worked for the French and British in the 50s in colonial assets that they used to know how to dominate. So what, uh, in particular with terrorism, what did it evolve to, you know, as we get into the, the 2000s? Well, basically, you know, the description you get from special operations forces here in Australia and for US special forces is it became a, a game of whack-a-mole. So they keep playing the attrition warfare game going, if we can kill these guys, we can stop this. If we can kill these guys, we can stop this. No, there's always another guy. So what you see in Iraq in particular is the success of Joint Special Operations Command Understand McChrystal is outstanding. They literally destroy Al-Qaeda in Iraq they destroy most of the militias who are willing to stand up against them and think, okay, we can start transitioning to a modern Iraqi uh, system. We can start building some sort of democracy. Well, all they really did, unfortunately, was kill a lot of people 
and convince those who are still alive to hide. So most of the people who end up forming ISIS, you know, five years later, simply stopped fighting the Americans in Iraq and said, it's pointless, we'll die. They're going to leave, they're not going to stay. Go silent, go dark, wait for them to go home and then gut this joint. You know, a very large proportion of the senior people in ISIS were in jail under the Americans and just sat quietly in jail, survived the torture when they left by the Iraqis to then come out and put you know, IS together. So what we see is we don't understand people for whom time is no problem. We don't understand people for whom death is a glorious end and a wonderful start to what comes next. And that their time scale and their understanding of, well, we're not winning at the moment. Stop. You know, wonderful cases in Afghanistan, for example, where Al-Qaeda left piles of their watches and their satellite phones going, you track us through the satellite phones and we've got all the time in the world. Oh, really? This is the kind of stuff that didn't get covered because it would have given us such a sense of we're in a war we do not understand against people who have all the time in the world who are convinced that what comes next is better than what happens now. That's a a devastating combination to have to confront. So what's the most current thinking on how to deal with, uh, you know, terrorism? Well, this is the thing at the moment. We're in a relatively quiet phase where, of course, our political elites are hoping that helping to you know, dismantle IS's caliphate means things might get better. But again, we're starting to see you know, attempted and, you know, and beheadings in France in the last few weeks. IS by 2015 were saying to motivated young guys across the world, do not come here. Sit at home, wait quietly, and when the opportunity comes, rise up. So they'd already changed gear from, okay, we can't have a caliphate. Okay, let's just blood the West again. So essentially, we're back to 9-11, but without the spectacular scale. What is the most current thinking on uh, on the side of the West or the side of Australia? or How are they supposed to deal with this now? Well, this is the thing. Our intelligence is infinitely better than it was pre-9-11. Uh, and more and more, we see it as an intelligence and a policing issue. Well, you- if, if these, maybe one of the benefits is if these people are very patient and time is no object for them, if you're able to give them the sense that they're being watched and now is not the right time and you could forever keep them in that now is not, is, is not the right time mode, then by definition, you win every day yeah. or every week. You do that, they're not attacking. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. They're going to attack you have more the time to get inside the network. Yeah. So really, the trick in the first place is to stop as many people being radicalized as possible. You know, this is where the fact that across the world after going through COVID, you know, most countries are probably going to cut back their aid budgets, arguing they need to rebuild their own economy, where this is absolutely the time to not cut back aid budgets, but also for the aid to not be too tight. What you want to be doing is making sure that people's lives get better everywhere, because people whose lives get better are less likely to be radicalized. And de-radicalization works incredibly poorly. No one in the world Yemen for a while worked out how to de-radicalize, and we can now see how well that ended. Well, speaking of COVID, it seems like governments are turning on their own people, imprisoning them, not caring what happens to them, et cetera, you know, all for the supposed for health. Do you see that there's going to be like inside of individual countries insurgencies coming to, you know, that are essentially going to go to war with their own governments because of COVID or no? 
Well, we can already see that we've got the potential for interstate war between it. We've had more border tension between India and China, you know, since COVID started than before, which suggests, you know, seeing it's China that keeps provoking, they're more than willing to use the fact that their troops on the border are isolated and are probably able to fight quite reliably to push the Indians harder and harder. And 2020 has been the year where the Indians don't bend. You know, we've had a melee at the snow line uh, between troops with metal bars wrapped in barbed wire. So we've essentially had medieval warfare at the snow line this year, which didn't get much press coverage, but it's kind of spectacular. In terms of individual countries, more people's lives have got harder. We've seen tensions rising you know, across Africa, you know, things that had been simmering but getting hotter now, that there's even less resources to, to help people and there's even more use of the state to keep people people still. So if you know, you're thinking of being some sort of insurgent and suddenly you're not allowed to move around and there's a curfew because of COVID, well, maybe it's because of COVID or maybe it's because the state's going to come down on you like a brick. So it suits the paranoia of a lot of insurgent organisations and terrorist organisations to believe that COVID is the perfect cover for the state to do dastardly things to them. When in reality, in the main, the state, you know, most states don't have enough resources, don't have enough time, have to make difficult decisions. And more than likely, this will rely and, you know, end in higher levels of, of tension uh, and probably violence at the end of COVID. Particularly, you know, at the moment, most of the world is doing reactionary Keynesianism. We're doing what we do every time the neoliberal economy, you know, craps itself. We go, oh, it doesn't work. Well, let's return to something do. Let's return to Keynes's writings from the 1930s and fix the world temporarily. But, you know, unless we've finally learned our lesson a year from now or so, we'll do exactly like we did after the GFC. We'll go back to neoliberalism as normal. And for much of the world, the residual resources have been used up. The available money to borrow has been used up. So I think we are very likely to see a genuine call for an economic transformation across so much of the world in the next five years because the residual you know, economic resources that neoliberalism can provide have pretty much been exhausted. So in the big picture, what do you think politically that's going to look like for the United States, for Europe, you know, for other countries? What do you think is going to shift over the next year or two or five years? Well, you know, let's do it sort of countries by countries. So China's economic miracle is based off the fact it hasn't used neoliberal economics. It's used state control and it's manipulated its currency. And guess what? It makes money hand over fist compared to the rest of the world. The US economy outsourced pretty much every job it possibly could, like the Australian economy, like the you know, multiple Western economies. And the idea of bringing jobs back home, you've just had four years of a president promising it. He can't show that it's worked. What you can say is your stock market went up, which means more people are doing more forms of rent seeking and speculation, but that is not productive activity that employs people. So we appear to be at some sort of tipping point now where we have, you know, got rid of jobs to such a level in so many countries and we're on the verge of some sort of robotics revolution what do we think we're going to do with 20 to 30 percent of our population who are reasonably educated want a nice life have essentially their grandparents were promised a nice life they were you know their parents were promised a nice life they were promised a nice life this is historically the recipe for political change This is what happened during the Industrial Revolution that led to the creation of unions and the radical shift towards democracy across the world. We're essentially seeing another wave of an economic transformation combined with a social disaster so big that there will have to be 
collective action and that collective action will demand change. Now, the thing at the moment is, you know, since World War II, Western you know, economies and liberal democracies have provoked, you know, promoted individualism to the point where collective action doesn't really work anymore. You know, you would see the decline in unionism and collective action in America like we see in Australia. Well, when things get bad, collective action tends to be one of the first things that comes back. We haven't seen it yet. And because people haven't done collective action for nearly two generations, it might take time to get it back. But with the combination of what job are you going to get? How do you get an income that can provide a decent quality of life? How do you survive in a rent-seeker-based speculative economy? We should expect a lot of you know, attention that will be a combination of sort of economic and environmental tension. So in India already, we have a combination of the two in the Naxalites. They are, you know, essentially want economic change and environmental change because they see the only way to fix both is to combine both. You know, the Naxalite model is growing in places like Nepal. There's more and more small movements in Africa that are seeing this combination of we need economic change to fix the environment. And really across the world, green parties want to function within liberal democracies. But they are also talking about in order to to fix the environment, we need economic change. So more and more, we're going to see the conjunction of the two, whether it's at a polite liberal democratic level or a more radical, we just need change now because this system is going to run us into the ground. So I guess in other terms, what do you think the the world's going to look like in the next few years, you know, country by country? I mean, country by country. What is your guess? Okay, you've had the, the rhetoric of bring jobs home hasn't worked. Your economy is at a super high level because of speculation and rent seeking. Uh, that is unsustainable for at least half your population. Yeah. That suggests political tension and then political reform. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement. How many deaths have we had in America this year that were meant to be the one that changed it? You know, here in Australia, we've got a similar decline economically. You know, the market's doing well. The rich are doing very well out of rent-seeking and speculation. But the average person cannot get a job where they can increase their productivity, earn more money and secure their future for them and their children. That's no longer part of the economic model. Now, we're promised by technologists a massive transformation. Now, historically, transformations in economics come from war. World War II fixed the Depression. The New Deal in America had helped to a degree, but it's war that transformed manufacturing, employed everyone, transformed the social norms so women could work at a much greater level in higher paid jobs. Uh, So hypothetically, there are an awful lot of analysts today that would say, you know, in the next five to 10 years, there is, you know, a war of significant scale involving the US and China plus allies, and that that ushers in major economic and you know, social change. We can hope that doesn't happen, but the tensions are all heading that way. Well, I see in the US there's great um, polarization, you know, between the left and the right. I'm not sure if it's happening very much in other countries. Um, yeah, I don't populism know, do you, do you... is pretty much growing everywhere, and populism offers people incomplete small answers that normally say that person is our problem, not with those people we could collectively build a solution. So the growth of populism, the fact that populism is growing in sophisticated countries. And, you know, a very big part of this is the Chinese and the Russians have done an outstanding job of whenever possible discrediting democracy and making it look incompetent or slow. Just as you mentioned, um, people didn't understand the Japanese or the Russians. 
Do you think politicians understand their own people no. in the various countries? And, and what do you think is going to happen because of maybe, I'm just guessing that they don't, and that they're going to continue maybe thinking business as usual. What, what do you think they're going to be forced into? Well, what I think we can see is, and you've just had an incredible example to, in your presidential election. You had a presidential election between guys in their late 70s. And you've got Joe Biden putting forth a cabinet that is essentially Obama 2.0. Well, we can really call it Obama 3.0 because Obama got two terms. And Biden is talking about the expertise of all these people. They're experts in a conventional wisdom that didn't work during the GFC, didn't work during Iraq, didn't work during Afghanistan. So how is it possibly going to work now? So what I would argue is, and it's a a trend across all successful complex systems, if a system is complex and more or less works, you don't reform it because, well, why would you? And if it takes takes a large amount of time to get to a position of relative power within a system, you've put so much effort into getting good at being part of the system that is, why would you put the system or your own position at risk when you're not sure you know what better is? So if we look historically, you know, World War II was transformative both economically, but also it showed democracies how fast they could move, what amazing things they could achieve. We then follow that up with the space race, when in reality, when Kennedy stands up in his 61 and says, you know, this decade, we're going to go to the moon. At the time, it's impossible. And it is largely the technical breakthroughs in that eight-year period that underpin all the technology have we have now that companies like Apple and Google make money off of. The touchscreen was designed with state money. Wireless was designed with state money. Everything we rely on for the technical age we are in came out of liberal democracies pushing the limits with state-funded research because of competition in space and over security. And somewhere along the line in the early 70s, we all swallowed the pill that says, Neoliberal economics actually makes the world go round. Business makes the world go round. Companies make the world go round. Companies do research to help people. And the rhetoric of that stuck when in reality, okay, state-run economies have their limits and there's things they shouldn't do, but they should do a lot more than they're doing now because in doing more, they solve social problems. They solve economic problems. They can solve environmental problems. Companies have no desire to do any of that. And more and more of them will have to get a social conscience because they want to earn money. But they are big and slow in the same way government is big and slow. Historically, if we look back at sort of management literature, there is no real difference in the pace that government moves at and the pace that companies move at. They both move no faster than they have to because changing hurts. So I think what we're going to see is a generational change that you've just seen an election where more young people turned out to vote. Our last federal election here in Australia, young people were more disinterested in the election than they ever have been. So you've turned a corner where they realise they've got to turn up. Ours have to turn up because we have compulsory voting. They're just not excited about it. But what we haven't seen yet is the genuine construction of we're going to join your old parties by the tens of thousands to the point where the people you put forward are no longer 75. We're going to put forward people who haven't benefited from 50 years of success, can't even see they're going to get 10 and Mm. who want change now because they're the ones who are going to have small children in a world where we're short of water, short of food, have, you know, I'm sitting here in Adelaide this morning and it's raining and humid. That's not what Adelaide should be at this time of year. It's more like Brisbane 
which is a thousand kilometers north of here mm. you know, in our tropics. Do you think that uh, any of these uh, democracies will return to an, a more authoritarian regime? Do you think the allure of, of China and Russia and places like that will, will turn some of these countries in that direction? Or do you think that uh, those countries will be turned more in a, you know, uh, to a more de democratic direction or no? We've seen the populists already in some countries in Europe. You know, we've seen them with Trump in America. And what we've seen is the populists promise simple and promise immediate results and fail. So I think most Western countries will have a small dose of pointless populism and its inability to get anything worthwhile done will, in a sense, prove the point that what actually works is people working together for a common aim, which can only be done really effectively through democracy. And being that we have the institutions, even if they're looking a bit rusty and fragile, and we haven't been investing in improving them properly, I don't think most young people with an education want to be part of a system that takes their rights away. You know, this is why China and Russia awesome. work so hard to sell the awesomeness of authoritarianism. You know, Cause they, you know, so for example, Australia is a massive, well, was a massive educator of young Chinese people. You know, our universities had so many young Chinese people here studying and China always has to deal with the fact they've gone and studied somewhere where they can be free. They've gone and studied somewhere where people have so many choices. There's less order in the world. Everything's less neat and tidy, but you don't have to worry about what the system will do to you. Uh, so I don't think we can do anything to really help, you know, the Chinese and Russian populations transform their countries because they've both had a lifetime of being told that authoritarianism is better and the West has done a terrible job of countering this. But I do think populism in the West is demonstrating it has feet of clay and it can do incredible slogans and for people who are angry. So in the rust belt of the US, of course, Trump was appealing. You know, here in Australia, we had a similar thing with a party called One Nation in the 90s and early 2000s, whereas as we were going into industrial decline, they promised the earth, delivered nothing, couldn't get into coalition with any sensible party and, you know, exploded. They're now evolving again, having another go, but once again on the periphery, claiming that simple answers to complex problems will work rather than recognising that what works is collectively coming up with meaningful change that takes the whole system with it. So when you when you say collectively, do you think that uh, the success of nations is going to be because of their their massive interaction with other nations and not this isol isolationism? Or like, what will it look like? What do you think success think going forward will look thing. like? It's the people under 30 who've gone to uni, have a mega debt and no sign of a full-time job get over political difference much better than their parents do. So I think we will see a much higher degree of going, what do we have in common in younger people than we see in middle-aged people? And as they start realising they have to be involved in politics and start reshaping political parties to look more like 40-somethings than to look like 70-somethings, which is really where politics should look, uh, I think we'll recognise that, okay, multilateralism on the grand scale has not delivered in the way I think anyone expected. The UN really has not been able to achieve what I think people hoped it could. But there are always more countries that you have things in common with than you have problems with. So something like intelligence, the five eyes, the classic you know, allies in the Anglo-Saxon world from World War II. It's a wonderful example of something on a scale where five countries who work in English and have trusted each other for decades can do intelligence together very well. The EU, though it tries to do big things, can do lots of smaller things quite well. You know, more and more South America is moving towards having relationships among themselves to make it easier to do business, easier to travel, easier to you know, improve law and order, easier to reduce corruption. 
I think we'll see more things on a medium scale that bring people together who have things in common. What, what are your thoughts on um, what, I don't know, what may be fringe or hopefully maybe fringe, you know, wokeness, political correctness, things like that. Um, how do they play into uh, a country's identity and functioning? Are they just kind of, I don't know, are they just fringe things or do you think that they're going to become a major element of some countries? Well, I think it's part of this process of going from being asleep and being happy little consumers in a successful economy to waking up and going, I have less money and I can afford less stuff. And the only stuff I can afford is from China. And there are authoritarian straight who are trying to undermine the economy I work in, the city I live in, and the country I live in. That's quite a wake up. So wokeness is, I think, an initial short, ugly form of waking up. So Sam Harris's famous book, Waking Up, once again, yeah, only sort of hinted at the beginning of we need to be more aware that we can't just go through the world consuming willy-nilly and accepting that the cheapest product from wherever it came from is good for us. We still somehow have to be able to buy that cheap thing and people have to have something to do with their day that's meaningful. So I think political correctness was very well-intentioned. But, you know, when people call me as a blind person visually challenged, I end up giggling and going, well, that suggests I can jump over it. Right. If yeah. I'm only really visually challenged, surely I can just go wee and leap over it. What a dumb yeah. word. So it seems to me that early attempts to regain political and social awareness have been sort of half-baked or half-cocked, I suppose, would be the American term. So political correctness to a large degree and workness are an attempt to re-establish some level of meaningful awareness and engagement, but from a starting point of near zero. And that means hopefully they'll be transcended by far more sophisticated action. And, you know, most of the footage I've seen here, well, listened to here in Australia, of young Americans talking about voting for the first time in their lives have given me great hope. They thought deeply about what they were doing and chose to turn up. Now, historically, young Americans don't turn up. So this is a good a good start. It's harder to judge somewhere like Australia where voting is compulsory. You know, here people turn up begrudgingly no matter what, whereas when you start seeing in a place where volu- your voting is voluntary, people going, well, it's my first vote and I've thought about it and this is what I've thought about it and this is how I've reached my conclusion. I suppose the thing too, and it's a very interesting political idea, when's the last time really that a political party in a major Western country won the election as opposed to the other side losing? You know, we're doing very much politics in the West of, I'll vote for these guys because they're not those guys. I see what you mean, right. Yep. So in Australia, I would argue we haven't had a, you know, a party win an election since 1986. In huh. 1986, Hawke and Keating genuinely won the election because they were going to reform the economy with a safety net in place to try and transition Australia into the modern world. Since then, governments, you know, the other side has lost. So you mean did Joe Biden just two evils? Precisely. Two. Okay. Yeah. So really, is Joe Biden exciting? No. You know, did people yeah, no. vote for Joe Biden or against Trump? And I think we need to understand, and this would be one of the most important things to come out of an improved political awareness, that there is value in voting against a worse outcome. But if you are willing to vote for a worse outcome, why don't you work towards contributing to a better outcome? So rather than just having the least worst become aware, switch on, get involved and contribute to something better. And I think that's the beginning of the transition we're hopefully starting to see across the democratic world, not just anymore going, it's someone else's responsibility. It's someone else's job. We can let the political elite be divorced from the rest of us. We can let it take 20 years from a kid, you know, leaving university, college, spending 20 years 
going through multiple roles in the party until the party trust them, but also they've lost their autonomy and their ability to think creatively about how to make a new world. We need them to be, you know, being part of that party at 25, 30 and changing it by the time they're in their mid thirties. You know, see, you brought up something interesting. You said voting is compulsory now in Australia. How long has that been? And what's been noticed since that was put in place? What it means is, you know, that, no one can say, oh, I can step out of this and I can throw my hands there. It's not my problem. So you can walk into any pub or cafe in Australia in the weeks before an election and even people who normally wouldn't care will seriously be nutting out with their friends and family what they think they're going to do. So at some level, you know, Robert Putnam, the famous social scientist who works on social capital, have you, have you read any Robert Putnam? No, I haven't. Okay, Robert Putnam works on the idea of social capital, which is essentially the glue that holds societies together and Putnam's argument is that social capital the glue that holds society together and really the important form of social capital is a kind called bridging social capital bridging social capital means you can go and work collectively with someone who's different than you on something you have in common and his famous book is called bowling alone and what he argues is the height of social capital in America was the 1960s by the 1990s it was in a dangerous level of decline and the decline has only got more and more dangerous So the reason the book is called Bowling Alone is he makes the point in the 1960s, if you went to a bowling alley, it would have been full of big families, sets of friends, sets of friends from work, sets of friends from college, sets of friends from the factory. Each lane would be full of a group of eight, 10 people bowling together and having a great time. By the 90s, you walk in a bowling alley and there's one or two people on each lane who knew each other and are meeting no one knew. The bridging social capital was in the process of declining. When Robert came out to Australia in 2011, I got to do a masterclass with him. He was saying that essentially Australia was five years behind America in the decline of social capital. And one of the arguments he made, he thought one of the reasons we were five years behind you guys in the decline was because of compulsory voting, kept people more engaged with different people and still feeling they're part of something as a whole. So Robert's written an amazing book this year called The Upswing about how to rebuild social capital. And I suggest to all your listeners and everyone, all your listeners know, it's probably the most important book of the 2020s. Well, okay. It's great. It's excellent. So do you think that uh, compulsory voting has actually helped social capital or maybe just for a few weeks, every, every, you know, X number of years when there's an election? Like what what do you think are some of the things that uh, that's come out of this? It's normalized at a level of social cohesion that stops an extreme level of polarization between our political parties. Because at the end of our, the day, our political parties don't just have to convince the true believers. And if you take, say, the example of the US, as time goes on, the true believers have become more and more distant from each other. The true believers on the right have moved further to the right. The true believers on the left have moved further to the left. The space in the middle is progressively more empty. In Australia, because everyone needs to vote, whether it is our conservative-ish Liberal Party or our progressive-ish Labor Party, they can't lose sight of the fact that the majority of Australians are in the middle and have to vote and you've got to keep their vote. So largely what it's meant in Australia is if we've got a more radical party, like for example on the right, One Nation, they're far off to the right and the Liberals might entertain some of what they're doing, but they can't go too far or they'll lose too many of those votes in the centre of those people that are not true believers in any kind of radical right-wing cause and are not going to go further to the right. If anything, if the right go too far, because they have to vote, they'll move their vote you know, to the centre-left as opposed further to the right. 
So it forces the parties to stay in a more balanced, moderate position. Now, people would say, oh, yeah, but that's not truly representative of people. Well, actually, it's more representative because most people are in the middle. And as we see with most social and political data, and particularly the kind of stuff Robert Putnam uses, the majority of people are more like each other than they ever understand or want to admit. And centrism is essentially almost like a natural position. And that's not to say that every society is exactly in the center. What it's to say is that the majority of people in any society, because of having language in common, culture in common, history in common, actually have far more in common than they would normally believe. And it's only if they stop engaging with each other that in the main, we start to see polarization. In general, um, what does the world look like to you, you know, five years from now? What are some of the major shifts that, that would jump out at you if you chose to look at it? Okay, what I would hope is we have a lot more young politicians. So take somewhere like, say, Finland, for example, where I think their prime minister just turned 35. Hmm. I would hope that that starts... Okay, we're not going to see lots of 35-year-old prime ministers, but maybe we'll see lots of prime ministers and presidents in their 40s, not their 60s or older. Uh, I would hope to see within five years that the majority of political parties, the majority of members are under 40, and that by the very nature that politics will start to change. Uh, I would like to see a proper reconsideration that why are we using reactionary Keynesianism to clean up messes when in reality we have better economic tools? Like in America, the other you know, critically important book of this year, Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, all about modern monetary theory. Now, I personally believe we should be applying MMT across the world as soon as possible because it is not an ideological economic tool. The left could use it in a way they want to build the world they want, the right could use it to build the world they want. Historically, it lines up with how money really works, as opposed to how neoliberalism argues it works since 1971. I would much rather see the world go, we have young people who've realised they have more in common, getting more involved in politics, and being part of a reconsideration of, we've tried this economic model now since the early 70s, and it is not delivering for the majority of people. And seeing Economics has never been stagnant. Why are we not willing to help it evolve? So if, if in five years' time we could have the beginning of younger politicians, much younger political parties, much more of a realisation that it's in the things we have in common we can find meaningful common ground to work from and a rethink of economic models that aren't delivering, uh, that would be a wonderful outcome. And if we can potentially avoid a major war between the US and China and allies... That'd be great. You know, that'd be fantastic. Hmm. Well, very good. Um, we're just about at the end of time, but can you restate the two recommendations? The book by Robert Putnam was what? And Not a problem. Okay. So Robert Putnam's book is called The Upswing, probably the most important book on how to rebuild societies ever written. Hmm. You know, Robert's amazing, but it's, it's his most amazing book. And Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, uh, all about modern monetary theory, which may not be the path that all countries pick, not even many countries pick, but there are so many ideas in it that all economies and people need to think about because the neoliberal model is not delivering. So do yourself a favour, read the upswing, read the deficit myth, and start talking about these ideas with other people to see even if you can't all agree, you're all interested in a better world. Excellent. Well, I'm getting them on Amazon right now and uh... If listeners are interested, I encourage them the same. You mentioned it before we went on live. Last thing, uh, I wanted to ask, how can people find you and learn more from you? 
you mentioned you have a podcast, so yeah, can you just um, take a minute and tell people what are some of the ways in which they can engage with you? Absolutely. Look, the easiest way to engage with me is through my, my podcast, uh, which is called Blind Insights with David Olney. I asked my students to come up with the name and you know, Jessica very carefully and thoughtfully went, what if you call it Blind Insights? Well, that's a cool name. I'm blind and we try and provide insights. It's good. It's truth in advertising. Um, we try and release an episode about once a week. We're up to our 100th episode. To put it in context, uh, we're in the international category that you're probably into, society and culture. Uh, we consistently you know, rate in the top 1% every time we look at the ratings. And when you look, nice. that's a category with over 96,000 podcasts in it. Being the top 1% consistently is a pretty good thing. Um, yeah. We always have a, an email link in there to get in touch with us. So, yeah, just find Blind Insights. You can find Blind Insights on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. I normally post anything I'm involved in. So the minute this comes out, I'll, I'll post this everywhere as well. Okay, yeah, if you, excellent. If you've got questions like listeners, if something I said today is interesting, you know, send Blind Insights an email. Send us an audio clip and we'll do an episode on your question. Okay. Yeah, very good. Well, David, thank you for coming. It's been a great call. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.